John chapter 10 is where we are today. John chapter 10, verse 22. John chapter 10, verse 22. We'll read down through verse number 42. We're continuing in this discourse that Jesus is having. And he finds himself in a different area this time. Genesis chapter 10, verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. This is God's word. The title of this morning's message is this, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for today, Lord. We thank you for your word. Thank you for these people that have assembled to worship you and to hear the word of God. We pray that you would be with the message this morning. Fill me with your spirit, Lord, and may I say only the things that you would want me to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Beyond a reasonable doubt, the legal definition is this. This term, beyond a reasonable doubt, is the legal burden of proof required to affirm a conviction in a criminal case. In a criminal case, the prosecution bears the burden of proving that the defendant is guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. In other words, this means that the prosecution must convince the jury that there is no other reasonable explanation that can come from the evidence presented at trial. There can be no other explanation for this evidence other than that the defendant is guilty. This is what reasonable or beyond a reasonable doubt means certainty is not required in the court of law certainty is not even required in most of our knowledge as we learn it 
It is not absolutely required in the sense that 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 always and forever will only ever equal 4. But there are some things, certain things in this life that we can have some sort of certainty about, but not quite the same level of certainty as a mathematical proof, so to speak. Proving a case beyond a reasonable doubt is an example in our society of how certain you have to be in order to convict somebody. These people have come to Jesus again and they've asked him, how long do you keep us in doubt? The question is a funny one. It's almost comical, actually, because if you think about it, Jesus has done anything but keep them in doubt. In fact, it's almost as if up to this point, Jesus is making it fairly obvious who he is and who he's claiming to be. Of all the miracles that he's doing, of all the things that he's teaching, of all the things that Jesus has been doing up to this point, it, how can it be any more obvious that Jesus is who he says he is? And yet these people ask him, how long do you keep us in doubt? Jesus presents three assertions in this text, three statements about himself that prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus actually is who he says he is. Let's look at these three assertions together. The first assertion that I see that Jesus makes here is this. Jesus unmistakably demonstrates who he is. Jesus unmistakably demonstrates who he is. I want to give you some context surrounding this, what the, what, what the Bible calls the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication is not an Old Testament feast. It was not one of those prescribed in the Old Testament law or anything like that. The Feast of Dedication is actually a feast that came about in the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period is the period of time, it's about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible, as we know, is divided up into two sections, two large sections. The Old Testament is the old section, of course, and the New Testament is the new section. <laughs> it is the life of Jesus on into the church age, which is present day. But in between those two testaments, there's a 400-year gap in which no scripture was penned down. During this 400-year gap, around 168 BC, there was a period of time where the Jewish people came under the rule and the oppression of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian ruler who uh, oppressed the Jews and ruled over them, and the Jews eventually mustered enough people and enough uh, resources and soldiers to rebel against this ruler. This revolt is known in the Apocrypha as the Maccabean Revolt. You can find this recorded in the book of Maccabees, uh, which is not scripture, but it, it, it provides some sort of level of historical insight as to what was happening in between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. The Feast of Dedication is the celebration of the rededication of the temple after the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes. After the Jewish people defeated this ruler, they once again cleansed the temple because this ruler in the meantime had sacrificed pigs upon the altar. They had, he had made a mess of the entire temple to show the Jews who was boss, essentially. And after he was defeated, the Jewish people rededicated the temple, they cleansed it, and they had an eight-day feast, an eight, uh, I'm sorry, a seven or eight-day uh, celebration to, to celebrate the cleansing and the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes. It is during this feast that Jesus is walking through the temple. It's wintertime. 
We know this feast by a different name today. In fact, we know that the major retailers actually have a market for this feast as well. It's called Hanukkah. Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas, all of these occur in the wintertime. But the Feast of Dedication is now known to us as the Feast of Hanukkah. And if you know Jewish people, you know that they celebrate this feast even today. Jesus is walking in the temple during the wintertime, during this feast, and he is accosted by these Pharisees again, and they ask him a very important question. They ask him in verse 24, how long do you keep us in doubt? As I said before, Jesus is not keeping anybody in doubt. If anything, they're projecting their own blindness upon the situation here. It is not Jesus who is keeping them in doubt. It is their own willful rejection of the message of Jesus Christ that is keeping themselves in doubt. Their doubt is exactly opposite of what Jesus is trying to prove to them. Jesus is making it obvious who he was. If you doubt, if you're sitting here this morning and you're doubting to yourself, who actually is Jesus? Is Jesus just some rabbi that is recorded in some ancient scripture? Is he just another person that is written in the stories of history meant for us to learn morals from but not necessarily believe that he is actually God? My friend, if you are doubting who Jesus is this morning, I want to read to you 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9. It says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're doubting who Jesus is this morning, Jesus cannot make it any more plainer than he is in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is God. Jesus is not the one keeping you in doubt. I would venture to guess that it is either your own questions or it might be the devil himself keeping you in doubt this morning. If there is anybody who is keeping you in doubt, it is anybody but Jesus. Jesus has already told them plainly who he is in verse number 25. He says this, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. How many different times has Jesus told them that he, in fact, is the Christ, the Son of God? In John chapter 3, verse 13, and in chapter 6, verse 38, he tells them that he is the one who came down from heaven. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he says that the Old Testament scriptures talk about himself. In John chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, he says to these people, I perfectly reveal God the Father in myself. John chapter 8, verse 58, one of the most famous verses in the book of John, he says, before Abraham was, I am. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, just a few verses before the ones that we read this morning, what did he say to them? He said to them, I will raise myself from the dead. Nobody else can say that. No other human can claim that type of power. Jesus is making it clearly very obvious who he was and who he was claiming to be. And, is, and, and as if that were not already obvious enough, his works have already made it plain to them. In just the book of John alone, he has turned water into wine. He has healed a nobleman's son. He has healed a lame man that was lame for 30 plus years. He has fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He has healed a man that was blind from birth. He has walked on water in the dead of night. What more proof do these people need? 
all of these miracles, all of these teachings, all of these signs that Jesus has said to them and shown to them, and these are just recorded in the book of John alone. Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain far more miracles that Jesus has done. We've been focusing on the book of John, but the book of John, all of those miracles that I mentioned, all of those are only in the book of John by themselves. What more proof do these people need on who Jesus is? How long do you keep us in doubt, Jesus? No, the fact is, you yourselves are keeping yourself in doubt. Jesus is not the one who desires to deceive you. It is not as if Jesus or God is up in heaven above thinking to themselves, how can I trick this person into not believing in me? That is not what he is doing. Perhaps Satan is trying to deceive you. Perhaps your own sinful flesh is desiring to be separate and independent from God. Indeed, if we see in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus is not the one wanting to deceive you. If anything, Jesus wants to welcome you into the fold and the family of God today. Jesus desires anything but to trick us into something that we're not supposed to believe. Jesus unmistakably demonstrates who he is. But not only does he unmistakably demonstrate who he is, Jesus also adamantly guarantees eternal life. He adamantly guarantees eternal life. Look at verse number 28. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. This is a classic text. It's a classic doctrine. Uh, I'm sorry. It's a classic text of the doctrine that we know as the doctrine of eternal security. For those of you that have been saved for a, a longer period of time, you know the doctrine of eternal security. You know that once you become a Christian, once you are saved, you are always saved. There is nothing that you can ever do after your salvation that will separate you again from God. You are Jesus Christ and his alone for all eternity. He has got you. Is that not a comforting thought? The, the idea that we could, that, that Jesus saves us first and then we work to keep our salvation is unbiblical, it's unfounded, and is of the devil. If you could not do anything to earn your salvation, what makes you think that you could do anything to keep your salvation? The fact of the matter is, friends, Jesus did all that was necessary to save us, and Jesus will do all that is necessary to keep us. Jesus promises eternal life, but he promises it to his sheep. Verse number 26 says this, But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You are either part of Jesus' flock, or you are not. You are either one of Jesus' sheep, or you're not. The people that Jesus is addressing this morning were not part of the flock of God. They are not part of the family of God. No, in fact, they have rejected Jesus' message so much so that they have become willfully and permanently blind. But the question for us this morning, church, is this. Are you one of his sheep? Have you made that decision in your life? Have you decided 
to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you accepted his forgiveness of your sins? Have you accepted the peace that passes all understanding into your life? And because of Jesus, you can live in victory for the end and for the rest of your days. Jesus holds on to us. This is the great assurance of the Christian. It is not anything that I can do. And if it were up to me, I would not be able to keep myself even if I wanted to. Jesus holds on to me. But not only does Jesus hold on to me, the Father holds on to you. In verse number 29, he says this, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus holds on to us. The Father holds on to us. And though Jesus does not mention it in this passage, he mentions it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. The Spirit holds on to us. Let me read you that very briefly here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You are triple secure for all eternity. You have a three padlock lock on your eternal destination. The Father planned it, the Son executed it, and the Spirit secures it. You are secure in Christ. For 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, that is, if we fall away, if we do not uh, keep to the faith as it were, if it were even possible for us to fall away like that, yet 2 Timothy chapter 2 says this, he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. If you're saved this morning, you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. If you stop believing, if it were even possible for you to fall away from God, God still cannot deny the Holy Spirit that he has placed within you. Hebrews chapter 13, 5 says this, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We are secure in Christ this morning. Take comfort in that, Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, it is no longer up to you what your eternal destination is. It is no longer part of your responsibility to make sure that you are on your way to heaven. Jesus has taken care of all of that for you. Jesus has paid the price. Jesus has executed the plan of the Father, and the Holy Spirit has entered your heart and has secured your eternal destination. The, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that he is the guarantee of our purchased possession. I've used this illustration with many of us at some time before, but I think it bears repeating. When you go to offer a down payment on a house or a vehicle or something of significance, when you go to the dealership and you say to them, I want to put an earnest deposit down, you put that money down and you come back later to purchase the possession, do you not? You come back later with the rest of the money or with your financing agreement or whatever else it is that you need to secure your possession. But in the meantime, your earnest money, your down payment, your deposit is there laying in the dealership. It's in, it's in the safe of the person that you're purchasing from. And if you decide to back out of the deal, do you get that earnest money back? You do not. The Holy Spirit this morning, church, is the down payment of our eternal destination. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is given to us in Ephesians chapter 1 as the earnest, 
as the guarantee, as the down payment of our eternal inheritance. If God were to renege on his offer, he would be separated from the Holy Spirit for all eternity. And we know that that can never happen. The Holy Spirit secures our destination. We are secured by the Father. We are secured by the Son. And we are secured by the Holy Spirit. We can take comfort in the fact that we did nothing to save ourselves. You can do nothing to keep yourself saved. Jesus will save us. So Jesus, he unmistakably demonstrates who he is. He adamantly guarantees to us eternal life. But finally this morning, Jesus confidently invites you to test his claims. Like in any courtroom case, the prosecution has made their argument. The defendant has to make their argument as well. The jury has to decide which argument is better. Which claims are more worth believing? Up to this point, Jesus has said to them, I have done all these works. I have taught you these many things. And yet he makes this capstone statement in verse number 30. I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. This is a claim to deity. This is not, as some cults would have us believe, this is not a claim that Jesus is merely one in purpose or one in, 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 uh, in mission with the Father. This is, in fact, Jesus claiming to be God. I and the Father are one. We are one in essence. How do we know this? Well, you know it by the reaction of the Jews in the very next verse. The Jews certainly didn't think that he was just talking about being one in purpose, Because in verse 31 it says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Does anybody see the irony in this though? Does anybody see that they had gotten what they asked for in verse 24? What did they say in verse 24? They asked him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And then in verse 30, what does Jesus do? He says, I and the Father are one. They got what they asked for. They got the answer that they were looking for, only it was an answer they did not like. They believed that Jesus was blaspheming against the Father. The the irony, the ironic nature of their response cannot be missed by us, church. They asked who Jesus was. Jesus tells them who he was. And what is their response? Their response is to take up stones and begin to execute him. No proper trial, no hearing, no defense, no nothing. But the sad thing about their accusation is that their accusation against Jesus would be true if Jesus was a man that made himself God. But the fact of the matter is that they got it backwards because Jesus is not a man that made himself God. Jesus is is the God that made himself man. They've got it all backwards. They've got it all wrong. They have been rejecting Jesus for so long at this point that nothing looks right to them anymore. 
all they can think now is, okay, we've got him. He's committed blasphemy. Now we can kill him. And yet Jesus still invites them to test his claims. In verse number 34, he, he begins with a reasoned dialogue with them. He says in verse 34, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is quoting something from the Old Testament, but unless you're familiar with what he is quoting, then, then it probably goes over your head as it did mine when I first read this as well. Jesus is saying, isn't it written in the Old Testament that God said of certain people that they're gods too? You see, in Psalm 82, in Psalm 82, and also in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter, uh, 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 chapter 21 and 22, God calls judges, that is, judges that settle disputes among people, he calls judges gods. Why does he call them gods? He calls them gods not because they were deities in the sense that we think of. He calls them gods because they are, in a very real sense, settling the fates of men. Judges do the same thing today. We find a, a, a televised court case, a very famous court cases televised on TV, and we see the judge handing down a verdict, striking his gavel, and quite literally deciding the fate of the person on the stand. They decide. The judge decides what happens to this person. So in that sense, God is declaring, and he's saying to these people in the Old Testament, yeah, these, these are gods. Jesus is using this logic now, and he's saying to these Pharisees in the New Testament, which we're reading from, he says to them, well, if God saw fit to just call them gods in the Old Testament, how much more fitting is it for me to call myself God if what I am saying and if the miracles that I am doing are true? If what I am doing actually is valid, if the things that I'm teaching you actually add up and you can search the scriptures and you can find that they're true, well, then how much more can I call myself the Son of God? Your argument and your accusation does not make sense. You are not thinking correctly. You are just angry that you've been outsmarted. This is the logic in the Old Testament. But, but then he, 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 he reasons with them not just from the Old Testament. He also reasons in light of the current things that he's doing. In verse number 37, he says this, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. He invites them. He says, look, if I'm not doing the right things, if I'm not truly doing the works of the Father, then, then don't believe me. But he says this in verse 38, But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying talk is cheap. He's saying anybody can say anything, but if, if they back it up with what they're doing, if they perform miracles, if they perform signs, if they back up what they're saying with what they're doing, then you have good reason to believe that what they're saying is true. Jesus is announcing to them 
Look at the things that I'm doing. Look at the things I have been doing. Look at the people that have been saved. Look at the people that have been healed. Look at the people that have been raised from the dead. Look at in the very next chapter, which we will see in a couple weeks, the death and the resurrection of Jesus' friend, Lazarus. Jesus is saying to them, I cannot make it any more obvious to you. I do not know any other way to cleanse you from your doubt other than what I have been doing the last three years. The things that I have been doing in front of your very eyes testify that I am who I say I am. You know, we live in an age now when Jesus has died and he has risen again, and now the scriptures are complete. Jesus is the word of God. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. But during this time when the scriptures were not even written down yet, Jesus was still living at this point. What was the primary means of revelation of truth from God? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 1, it says that Jesus himself, the Son of God, is the manifestation of truth. Jesus himself, God has made himself known to man in the Gospels through his Son, Jesus Christ. If you do not believe the word and the works of Jesus during the time that Jesus lived, then you are willfully blind. Jesus reasons from the Old Testament. He reasons from his current works. And in essence, he says this. The bottom line is this. Truth does not fear a challenge. Truth stands on its own. For those of us that have an interest in this, we, we know that there are historical, there are scientific, there are philosophical reasons, there are good reasons to believe in the Christian faith. I, like many of us, grew up in a Christian household and I was raised in a Christian home and I got saved at a very early age. And up until about college age, I kind of just took it all as something that my parents and my church and my pastor had taught me. It wasn't until I got to college and started digging into the Word of God and into the realm of Christian apologetics for myself that I discovered there are far better reasons to believe in the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus than simply because somebody told me. If you go out and you look at what the scholars and what the philosophers and what the scientists have said, it all only points to one place. It is that God created the world, Jesus is God, and you can have salvation through Jesus Christ. The, 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 the claim that the Bible is man-made and that Jesus was just a man or I don't believe the resurrection happened, all of these are claims that are verifiable. All of these things are testable. Jesus invites you to test his works, to test his claims, to investigate the evidence. The claim that Jesus is making in the text as it pertains to us today, though, is that he is God. There is no pathway to peace, no way to heaven, no forgiveness of sin apart from him. Jesus unmistakably demonstrates who he is. He adamantly guarantees eternal life, but finally, he confidently invites us to test his claims. Many of you know the story of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a avowed atheist, convinced that, quote, people created God because they were afraid of death. And his hedonistic lifestyle revealed no spiritual inclinations whatsoever. Lee Strobel's life is made even more famous by the recent movie, The Case for Christ. 
He wrote a book by the same name, but if you haven't seen the movie, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, the story about Lee Strobel's life. He says this in a testimony that he gives, quote, I lived an immoral, drunken, profane, narcissistic, self-destructive kind of life, Strobel said. Although he was an award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune, he had a mess of a life, saying that his young daughter feared his arrival home from work. When his wife, Leslie, was befriended by a Christian woman in their condo building and made a decision to accept Christ, Strobel was not impressed, but figured he had nothing to lose in accompanying Leslie to church one Sunday. He said this, that the service was in a movie theater. The preacher was Bill Hybels, and the topic was basic Christianity. Lee Strobel left that service with a lot on his mind. And he said this in his testimony, if this stuff is true, it has huge implications for my life. And what did Lee Strobel spend the next several months and years of his life doing? He, was a, he had a master's degree in journalism from Yale University. And what did he do the next, uh, the next several months? He began to investigate the claims of Jesus with the knowledge and the tools of a journalist. And he examined the claims, he examined the historical evidence, he examined the scientific evidence. Long story short this morning, Lee Strobel finally, at the end of his investigative journey, put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' claims stand up beyond a reasonable doubt. You can trust Jesus. He has demonstrated who he is. He guarantees you eternal life, and he willingly invites you, he openly invites you, to test the claims that he makes to you this morning. Will you invite him into your life this morning? Will you begin to strengthen your faith if you're a Christian? Will you begin to learn a little bit more about what it means? What are the intellectual reasons? What are the other good reasons we have to believe in the Christian faith? Will you grow Christian? And if you're not a Christian, would you become one today?